0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Stuart Lyle. Stuart serves as the Urban Operations Research Lead for the UK's Defense Science Technology Laboratory, DSTL. Stu, welcome back to the show.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be part of that small group of second-time participants.
0: Well, one, you know you're a part of the the mafia that I consider of the few experts, which will actually get into our topic on what you've done and why it's so hard to do. We're going to be talking about designing a unit for urban operations and what the British Army has done. But I do consider you, as the listeners will know since you've been on, part of this very small community of urban warfare students, like myself, Jason Giroux, Anthony King, and a couple others that specialize or have done a lot of study of urban operations. And most militaries, for some reason, don't have anybody who's done that for more than a few years. So what we're going to talk about, though, is the new project, which is very exciting, since I do think the British Army is really leading the way on many initiatives. We're going to get into, let's start with what you do at DSTL, since some listeners might not know.
1: Yeah, so I've been at DSDL now for 11 years, and I started out working in the high policy realm. So working very much focused on the Ministry of Defence headquarters, thinking about regional strategies, but also looking out towards the future and how the operating environment is going to be changing. As a result of that, I started to get exposure to things like the trends in urbanisation and how that's going to impact on military operations. I have a very sort of minor infantry background. So I also started getting involved in supporting some of our land focused subjects and projects. And I saw saw this sort of disconnect between what a lot of the future's trends was pointing towards, and then what necessarily the army was doing, and it wasn't matching up. So we were identifying and high level defense was saying, we're going to conduct more urban operations in the future. And then when I was supporting land work, it really wasn't focusing on that, or there wasn't, there was very little uh, actually, sort of worked to try and address that. So I started getting more involved in land-focused work, and then really diving into urban as my specific subject and subject matter. Uh, and I've been doing urban specifically for about seven years now so maybe eight years—and basically anything that comes into DSTL with a with an urban label to it then sort of comes almost through me first, or I'll be involved somewhere in the process uh, just to kind of keep things coherent.
0: Do you mind if I give that simile that? DSTL is basically the UK version of our DARPA?
1: Yeah, and that, and that's a fair comment because there's a lot of bits within DSTL that would be akin to what DARPA is. I would say that there isn't actually a single US equivalent to DSTL. And this is one of the things that we find when we, when we do an awful lot of collaboration with our US partners. We have to use partners in plural because actually it's not just one particular organization. So DSTL, there's about 5,000 of us. We cover a broad range of topics. In fact, pretty much if, you, if defense has got a finger in the pie, then you can pretty much guarantee we have as well. So my, my group is the land analysis group, and we would be akin to the U.S. Center for Army Analysis so that's pretty much my group within DSTL would be the equivalent of one of those institutions. We also have other groups that would be akin to something like the Center for Naval Analysis or the research and development parts that are sort of defense owned within within the US. So we are the equivalent of DARPA, but we're also the equivalent of all of these other areas um within within the us system so there's no there's no single us equivalent we also don't just work for defense we've got a whole slew of stuff to do with security and policing so things like explosives forensics uh, scientific and analytical support to intelligence communities etc so there's a whole raft of things that fall under the one umbrella of dstl
0: now, fair enough it's understandable that there's a multiple like organizations that you might correspond with here but that's great and have an urban guy who's been studying urban operations because I do differentiate urban warfare and urban operations. That's been looking at it as long as you. That's amazing. And, and I tell people I have job security because the U.S. military really doesn't have that. Doesn't have an office. Doesn't have a guy who they've let just study urban operations for almost a decade in multiple projects. And I know I'm familiar with many of your projects, right? Because we're friends. We're often at the urban operations planners course or any urban warfare conference. If I'm going, I usually know that you're going to be there too. Yep. And if Jason, if they let him out then Jason's there too, but you've done a couple of the projects before this one that I, I mean, I assume led you to be able to be a big part of the project to design a unit optimized for urban warfare, like the, your future cities project can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i can yeah so actually they are linked they all came from the same larger project so there's different ways that dstl gets resourcing for funding uh, our particular research or uh, our projects some of it comes from the military so we'll have the army headquarters or the land warfare center will ask us to help them answer a question that's one way another way is that we have the ministry of defense's chief scientific advisor who will also issue out questions and some of them can be simply can you answer questions that you know having interact with the army and then can you actually write your own questions that you know that aren't being asked so i was given the task to write three questions to address urban challenges and so one of them was let's look at the urban environment and how it's changing so that became the future cities report that's available online on the mod's website so if you if you want to you can just google dstl future cities and that looks at all of the trends within urbanisation and looks at them in a lot uh, lot more detail than what a lot of the futures documents will. A lot of them will say there's going to be more urbanisation, but then it's only generally sort of a small section within one report. What we wanted to do was try and look at all of those sort of sub-trends within urbanisation, explore them in a bit more detail, and then put the military, as we call it, the so what. So put the military so what on top of that and say the implications of military operations of things like Internet of Things, of demographic changes, alternative governance are these and that was very much kind of like that high level, trying to look at those macro trends. So that was the future cities report. The second piece was looking at how do adversaries, various types of adversaries, conduct urban operations. So we looked across the broad spectrum of historical case studies and potential adversary doctrine and looked at how they conduct urban operations and tried to draw out some, some implications for a UK type operation. And then finally, the third piece was we've looked at the environment, we've looked at the adversary. What can we do? To try and change things and address some of these uh, these challenges and one area which really hadn't been looked at for a very long time was light forces in particular um, but also looking at how the infantry can adapt to urban operations in particular all of our previous research that had had an, an urban flavor to it was all looking at heavier forces and armoured infantry but in reality they had the mobility the survivability and the firepower what wasn't being addressed then was some of the limitations that light forces in particular have So that's what we focused on for that bit.
0: So those are are some major separate research projects. What's the year timeframes for those?
1: So the Future Cities report was delivered in February 2020. We probably spent about a year and a half researching and writing that one. The same with the Urban Adversaries report. There was a slight overlap in the timeframes, but they kind of came out about the same time. Then the urban phalanx study, the infantry study, that came out about a year later. That was a sort of follow on from all of that. So yeah, we probably had about eight people in total working across all three projects. not necessarily all at the same time, but I was the, the continuity between all all three of them.
0: Nice. Okay. So let's get into the urban phalanx, which is the designing of an urban unit based on all of those other all that other data and information you gathered from the research projects, which are great. And then I do recommend people Google that future cities report. Some people discount some of those mega trends and just pick from them what they want in order to do their own modernization projects. But I really commend this stepping stone approach to lead to this urban phalanx research project, which is a a unit. So can you tell me, you know, I've actually been asked a few times, like, okay, let's design an urban warfare unit. Cause I've run my mouth a few times and said that we don't have one. it, It would be easy to do, The US military has a little bit more force structure than other people, and it wouldn't take much to take like a division and design a division specific for the optimized, let's not say specific, right? The words matter, optimized for the urban environment. But you guys have done it, and I'm very interested in the Fanlinks project research on how, what was your methodology based on the urban environment, the methodology, assumptions, considerations that drove, and I know this is your kind of research lane and I'm probably going to miss a bunch of it, but what was the methodology in which you used in the project to get you to providing specifically the land component, the army with, Hey, this is what we think should be a optimized unit.
1: Yeah. So the, the first bit was identifying what are those key challenges and none of them will come to come as a surprise to anybody. Who's, who's looked at urban urban operations or urban warfare, you know, it's the, you know, the Western way of warfare is about fires and manoeuvre. And when you really start to look at that, you can quickly gather the evidence that actually it's very hard to manoeuvre and it's very hard to employ your fires. It's one of the reasons why historically light forces in particular have been kind of pushed forward. And the UK staff officer handbook says outright that Light forces are one of the the principal ones for conducting urban operations because they have that inherent mobility of the urban environment is built around people and they can move around that, make a move through buildings and around them. So there was that side of things trying to gather the evidence of where all the challenges were and where all the limitations were. We looked, and as I mentioned, armored forces, armored infantry, and armored forces—they've taken the lion's share of a lot of the the work that's gone on trying to research urban operations. Certainly in the, in the UK, and that's been the case, but in reality. They've got the mobility, they've got the firepower, and they've got that added protection. What wasn't then being addressed was how do we change some of those challenges for light forces? So when you look at UK light forces battle group, um, say you've got uh, a limitation on mobility. They're obviously light forces, so they lack protection. And there was a limitation on some of the fire's assets, so lack of precision assets, um, lack of mass. And then... We'd actually changed, made some decisions about platoon level lethality a few years ago, which actually removed or reduced some of the, the capability specifically in more complex terrain like urban. So that really kind of drove us towards focusing specifically on light forces. And then if you look back at any of the urban operations literature and historical examples, you quickly realise that actually it's the, it's the subunit, the company level and below, which really is kind of the foundation for urban operations. You don't really manoeuvre anything higher than a, than a company actually within the urban environment. So it becomes a series of company level uh, or platoon level or even squad level battles within an urban space rather than necessarily a brigade conducting um, manoeuvre. So really that kind of drove us towards focusing on building up from, from the ground up. Um, so looking right back, you know, first principles, let's get the section right, or the squad equivalent, you know, let's get that right. And if we can build on that, then let's see what capabilities we need to have at platoon level, and then that you know where can that mitigate some of the challenges accompanying above. So that really was it, it was taking, rather than a top-down approach, it was basically taking that bottom-up um, view of sort of force design.
0: It actually, as you were telling me about this, it sounds a lot like, and I I know it's not, but what I had hoped the Close Combat Lethality Task Force would do back when General and Secretary of Defense Mattis said that, like, we do a lot of work, but we aren't focused on that fighting force that takes a lot of the casualties in that last 300 to 100 meters. And they didn't, which I wish they would have, specify complex terrain is. Let's be real and say that's urban terrain.
1: Yeah, they didn't specify that, but actually, we we did work with them. There was collaboration between them in that early stage about the concept development, and in particular, it was uh, it was engaging with the U.S. Marine Corps. So I was uh, I was over at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab in 2019 at the the Moors Urban Conference where we first met. And at the same time, while I was there, I also got to then um, engage with the Marine Warfighting Labs team that did their Squad X or their Uber Squad, depending on the, the terminology that's used. But they did a lot of this sort of squad level experimentation about enhancing lethality. Um, does that optimize or does that increase um, enhancing lethality? Does that enhance speed and tempo? Um, does it enhance the flexibility of commanders with different options and things? So we were able to work with them and uh, effectively sort of steal some of their ideas Um, but also we were able to then put it through some of our modeling and simulation systems which they hadn't necessarily had access to we did feed our results back to them and they were um, sort of grateful for receiving that because it basically validated a lot of the work that they'd done so we worked in parallel and and sort of helped each other out there so yeah so all the reforms that the U.S. Marine Corps have done at some of the some of the squad level reforms that they did were very much kind of in line with some of the challenges that we were doing but we were just looking at specifically through an urban lens because that was our exam question.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, that 2019 was when the leadership of the U.S. Marine Corps had identified urban operations as a priority, right? So a lot of these are based on leadership and all that. So they had Project Metropolis during that time, which is the biggest and best experimentation for urban warfare. And I was involved in part of that. And the Moors Conference was really a feeding into that, the analytical arm of that. And then you had DARPA with the Squad X. The Marine Corps was pushing really hard, and then they were given you basically told to stop which the timeline of this is kind of interesting the project metropolis was a 5 year research program that was stopped about 18 months into it because the leadership said okay we're going to prioritize and you know pacific and 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 not urban it's interesting that that was beating each other but i really like the consistency of your team staying on it despite and i know that's because you are outside of the land forces and the some of those leadership changes but You finished your project, right? You did all the analysis. You did all this work, which is actually years of work leading to this research project because they have you, the urban guy. What were some of the findings that your research came to say is needed to be changed at that light infantry place?
1: Yes, I'll break it under two main focus areas of the project, of of the concept. And really what it boils down to is when you're in that complex urban environment at that uh, squad and platoon level, what we find is that there are there are two big challenges. One is the cognitive burden for junior commanders, whether that be squad leaders, fire team leaders, platoon leaders, because the environment is that more complicated. They're trying to negotiate through a manoeuvre through an environment that is that is more complicated than than a rural setting. There are in much greater proxi- or much closer proximity to the enemy. So there's got that sort of greater um, psychological burden on them, you know, enemy in any window or around any corner. And then they've got that, that challenge of employing more complex tactics in order to match that terrain. So you're asking somebody to have, you're increasing the burden on them about the complexity of what, they're, what you're asking them to do. On top of that, you're also asking them to now be sources of information in a way that they're not necessarily in a rural setting. So you will have the squad leader will have the platoon leader on the radio asking for updates because that squad leader is the only person in, say, the brigade that's actually in contact or can see the enemy. So they're suddenly having to feed information up in order to feed that, the situational awareness at higher echelons in a way that they're not expected to do uh, to the same extent in in a rural setting. So there's a much greater cognitive load on junior leaders, certainly at squad and a platoon level. So that was the first big challenge we wanted to try and address. And the second one was the greater reliance on organic firepower. So you've got the limitations of indirect fires and joint fires assets. You know, the average infantry, dismounted infantry engagement uh, range in urban is less than 50 meters. That's the average. It doesn't preclude you having to do a long shot. It doesn't preclude you having to do ones uh, shots even closer. But that's roughly the average. Is about 50 meters. In that case, you're, you're well within danger close for pretty much every single indirect fire asset you've got. So really, it kind of drives you towards much greater use of direct firepower or organic firepower. And that's why we see things like combined arms teaming with armor and armor ammunition going up because they're being used in lieu of artillery. So it's trying to address things like, well, if you've got a light forces, well, you don't necessarily have tanks. Or you might be in an environment where the tank can't get to you because the street's too narrow. So it's trying to look at, okay, well, actually, we probably need to increase the lethality at the squad level and then at the platoon level and give commanders at those levels different layers of options so you can tailor the effect you need for the target you're trying to, to deal with. So those are the two things we wanted to try and address was that cognitive load and the um, the reliance on organic firepower. So that's what we were trying to, to focus on.
0: Nice. And those, if anybody's listening to the podcast and that seems – Very common sense, very historical, based on almost every urban battle I've ever studied those two big challenges, the cognitive load and firepower, concrete penetration. So what were the ideal solutions? I know that it's going to be a little different. So talk to me like I don't know anything about British Army squad sizes and platoon sizes and the organic material or weapons and capabilities that they would have. Prior to this study,
1: okay. So I'll address the the, the structures first. So at section currently, you have the you know, the UK squad has got um, it, ideally it's a, it's a squad of eight soldiers. Um, so effectively, it's the same as a US Army one, but rather than having an independent squad leader, um, the leader of one of the fire teams in a British Army section is the section commander as well, um, and that's and that's it. So, so you've got two fire teams of four. But one of them will be led by the section commander, and the other will be led by the section second-in-command. What we did for the phalanx concept was we stole the American model of an independent squad leader, and that way, that if you're in some, uh, if you're in an urban clearance operation, you're not then as the squad leader, one of the people who is breaking down into two-man, three-man, four-man clearance drills and getting drawn into the minutiae of clearing rooms and searching behind furniture. You've got that um albeit limited but you've got an element of detachment from the fire team so you' become much more of a coordinating function and a command function the way the way it kind of should be um so that's what we looked at uh for for the section commander and then each fire team is still a fire team of four um with each with their own fire team leaders one of those fire team leaders will be the section two ic um but ultimately you have two consolidated four person fire teams that can go and do the clearance operations can you know um can hold security on corners and um stairwells all that sort of all all the good stuff that we we ask people to do but it means then that if the commander has to step away for whatever reason because say the squad's dislocated between two floors of a building that fire that fire team that they would historically have been in doesn't lose 25 percent of its firepower um, it allows them to have that detachment so they keep situational awareness of what each of the two fire teams are up to rather than them being part of one of them. The f- second uh, change uh, is that we created, s- stolen from the US Marine Corps, given the credit where it's due, is the uh, the squad systems operator. We call it a section systems operator. And that basically boils down to the fact that we are putting more technology into the infantry section and it's not necessarily being resourced with individuals. So there is a, there's a pretty much a flawed assumption that there are people with spare capacity within the squad who can take that new technology and operate that new technology. Uh, In reality that's one thing that with all of our trials and research in DSTL, we find that actually that's not the case. And when we've been running trials with giving squads uh say a nano UAS to allow them to be able to look over tree lines or look over buildings it tends to not get used as often because somebody has to choose between do i fly this uas or do i cover a street corner where there might be a threat approaching and that basically is what people resort back to what the primary job is um so in our research we find that these that that's the the biggest barrier to actually exploiting a lot of this new technology that we're putting into the squad level is lack of people to actually to physically manipulate it um so the US Marine Corps were very open about the fact that they were talking about future-proofing the squad, and they're looking at things like, at the moment, it's a drone operator, um, but it could well be somebody who then later on uses tactical EW or cyber effects, or whatever that might be. Um, the way we looked at it is that we're looking at integrating things like mounted Situational Awareness Kit, so the, we're buying the ATAC system, uh, the little sort of combat computer you see on soldiers' chests. And... While well, that's really good for a squad leader to have. One of the things, again, that we find from our trials uh, is that whenever a squad leader has that capacity, they then lose all situational awareness when they when they look down and are trying to operate the system. They have to reorient themselves onto the onto the screen and the and the mapping on the screen. And then, as soon as they then look up again, they've kind of lost orientation on the screen. So they're on this constant um, to and fro. Of trying to situate themselves in either the screen or in the real world. And it it complicates that cognitive load. And as we discussed, was one of the things we were trying to to address. So basically, what we looked at doing was giving the squad leader uh, a dismounted situational awareness system, but then primarily having it being operated by the systems operator. They've got the drone, uh, so they can fly it around, identify positions, both friendly and enemy. They can update the ATAC system, the, the Blue Force tracking system. And they can keep the squad leader informed as to what's going on in a way that stops them having to sort of look away from what they're doing. Um, The way I try and explain it to um, military audiences, if if you think about that J-35 function in a headquarters, it's effectively putting that all the way down at squad level. So the squad leader is fighting the fire teams and the systems operator is thinking about what's over that building and what's happening in the next street. So that's that's the section concept.
0: No, it's great. I mean, it brings up a lot of ideas in my mind, Um, even projects that I've dabbled in a little bit, like asking the Maneuver Center of Excellence, why is the U.S. military squad a nine-man squad? This gets into, which I know would be a rabbit hole for us to go down, is understanding the evolution of force structure and force design is that there are a lot of decisions that have been made in the past based on the operating environment or based on other things, leadership and and vehicle sizes okay. uh, I, and i when i actually asked i asked general mcmaster at the time who was actually in charge at now fort moore of the maneuver center of excellence which is our infantry and our armor and he's he pointed me to a iran study which talked about our squad sizes being different sizes from 7 to 13 and our nine-man squad that we have now hasn't changed since the 70s and again it's it's a rabbit hole to go down i love both those ideals and The other funny thing is I did go to the Marine Corps Project Metropolis experiment at Muscatatuck, which I love it's the world's best company level training exercise environment that I think there is. I went there and they had actually given those e-tags or those basically mini tablets to both the squad leaders, the team leaders, and then some of the soldiers. So the first few experiments using these available technologies was exactly that. The squad or the platoon lost all situational awareness once they entered the environment because they were looking at their their screens, which have great information. But this is my thing to include with the goggles of the U.S. military is having to understand the cognitive load of the leader or even the soldier at that moment and knowing when he needs a piece of information and when he doesn't. Or when you're, like you said, if you give them drones and somebody, okay, somebody's got to do that rather than what they were doing before. As part of this limited manpower situation, which is honestly limited for many reasons—experience of the soldiers, the breakdowns—there's just so many assumptions that people don't know that are designed into these, even at the squad level, makeups, right? The what weapon they're carrying, what function they they're doing, what responsibilities they have. So I love the idea, and if I could wave a hand in the U.S. Army, I agree that that systems operator. Especially since the evolution of the use of drones on the modern battlefield, cheap, expendable, ubiquitous drones, especially in the urban environment where you don't know. A lot of these concepts are about how easy it is for the enemy to be hidden, covered, or concealed in the urban environment. And you can lead with your face like the Russians do and just send people in front of you until you discover the enemy. Or you can use other ISR platforms. but. Once you get that information, you have to give it to the squad and then the system operator could be that person, but then he also has to have the ability to tell the squad leader or this whoever the leader is at the right time, at the right moment, the piece of information. It's almost like a filter in my mind. Yeah, That's why I've always seen the system operator, not just a guy who's flying the drone, whatever, but it's the filter that would reduce the cognitive load of the leader of this very important piece of information. This is the Vietnam helicopter flying above who thinks he's doing well, or even my experience in Iraq of the multiple drones put above me. And then somebody trying to call me and say, Hey, you're going the wrong way. Hey, why are they doing that? Even when you get that level of situational awareness, it has to be given to that person at the right moment, at the right time under the most complex situation, which is uh, you know like a firefight.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And it's, it's about that timeliness of uh, of information and, um, yeah, actually being able to process it. And t- information collection is one thing. Processing is another thing. And that, that's something that we've had, we've expended an awful lot of time and resources on is trying to find ways to process information because while it's all well and good to try and um, experiment with new types of collection assets, more drones or, or what have you, we've already identified in, in a lot of our studies is that we already have too much information coming in and we can't process the current amount of information. So if we only increase, if we only increase the collection assets uh, without necessarily increasing the processing, then, then that basically gums up the entire system um, and you just overload your intelligence analysts. So that was a really big feature of, um, the contested urban environment experiment that we did, and that pretty much focused almost entirely on I star and C2 concepts, simply because we know that when you get into that complex urban space, the amount of information sources, uh, trying to process it all and get the right information disseminated to the right person is, is pretty much one of the, the, the key challenges that faces uh, an army.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's so many issues, like even the experiment I think you saw I did at West Point with virtual goggles with cadets, right? So one of the filters of information into the cognitive load of a soldier is just that soldier's experience, tactical and technical proficiency to be able to identify when and where they need information and when they don't versus just stopping what they're doing and or rejecting the information because they're already cognitively overloaded where like a special operator might be able to receive multiple information feeds and be fine with it and and be highly functioning and actually is filtering with the best the human mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We looked at, the systems operator at all levels as well. So it wasn't even just at the squad level because we recognise that actually the squad has their picture that they're trying to look at, but then the platoon's trying to look at something else as well. And they you know, the platoon leader will have the same challenges as well. So we also looked at system operators at that level. And then certainly within the British military, we don't necessarily have drones, ISR drones, organic to battalions or even subunit level. So even at sort of company group level, we haven't really got that sort of system in place either. So we're trying to look across you know, the whole spectrum of where do we where do we need information. It's about getting information and generating information and then being able to act on it timely enough at the point of need, rather than necessarily having it just delivered from a you know collected at a brigade, processed at a brigade, and by the time it filters all the way down, then you know the the target's moved or somebody's already in contact.
0: Right. I guess this is the point where you give me the opportunity to tell me you how much I hate it, the Raven. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know I gotta say it almost every time. Go and
1: get a new system. <laughs>
0: Right, get it out of my system. And the fact that I don't like the hornet either. The fact that at, that we don't have at the squad level. Actually, I mean it was General Scales who said this about one of our first Medal of Honors for the last twenty years. That you know Junta in the one seventy third, their squad was ambushed in the open environment, and how criminal on the modern battlefield that is still a possibility, and that. A squad, a platoon, doesn't have the ability to put something in front of it rapidly, easily. And I hate the Raven because it's not rapid. It's not easy and you can't see much with it. The fact that you can't put something up in front of it is criminal. So the other thing I would do if I could wave a hand is that there wouldn't be a squad in the military that didn't have multiple expendable cheap drones to put in front of them so they're not leading with their face or running into surprises. Oh, much like what is happening in Ukraine and why thousands and thousands of both civilian and civilian altered drones are being sent, bought, purchased. The drones are almost becoming the artillery rounds of the modern battlefield. So I would change that. I'll be interested to see as this develops so what are the system operator, what but what also are all the drones that are given to that close combat force? Like what are the array of drones at their level that are given so that the system operator can receive those bits of information
1: yeah well i'll talk about the experimentation that's taking place in a little bit but i'll just talk briefly about the platoon the platoon level concept and the structure as well so while i've explained the the section there'll be three sections within the platoon pretty standard stuff so yeah three squads in the platoon we created a platoon systems operator to again share that cognitive load with the platoon leader the only difference between them and this uh this the section of the squad systems operator is they would probably have a UAS that has longer endurance, better optics, um, being able to see further because that's where their, you know, the platoon level requirement for information is. Um, additionally, we used to have, as a the British system used to be, where we had a uh, platoon level mortar system. So 51 millimeter liter, 60 millimeter mortar system. Um, it was one of the uh, sort of lightweight handheld mortars. And that's what we had as a platoon indirect fire asset. Now that's, that system's gone from the British military. So the systems operator, in order to try and give a beyond line of sight strike capability, we give them we termed it tactical precision strike. So a loitering munition, or it could be first person view kamikaze drone, whatever it, you know, however you want to um, define it. But we give the platoon systems operator that capability, that bit, that ability to deliver a kinetic effect. With, precise, with precision um, in, in an urban environment. So not necessarily coming straight down from above, but being able to move around the environment so that it can go through windows or attack the other side of a building um, that, you know, or, or engage dynamic targets in a way that you couldn't necessarily have done with a mortar. So I know we get get a lot of sort of pushback on this particular concept about the mortar system itself. Why couldn't we bring back the mortar? Because it also does smoke and illumination. Um, But realistically, what we were looking at delivering is that kinetic effect. Because at the moment, um, I liken it to the the scene in Black Hawk Down where you've got one of the ranger elements going down a street and the, the I star bird above tells them that there's an armed mob moving down the parallel street. And they have no ability to interdict that until they basically get to a street corner stick their head run and somebody fires a 50 cal at them and i look at that and i show that to the military and i say well you know that problem set has not gone away we still have no ability um to to, to challenge that threat um so that's really what we were trying to do um so that's what uh, that's what that that's the difference between the platoon systems operator versus the squad one is they've got that tactical precision strike system um to, to help
0: so like a is it like a switchblade kamikaze drone or something like that
1: yeah, so when we when we modeled it, we had to have some sort of characteristics to model against, and we modeled it off a Switchblade 300, but we're not necessarily saying that that's the system that it has to be. We, we were saying that actually it's it's the effect that it's delivering was what we were really trying to test. So that's why we called it a tactical precision strike system rather than sort of trying to solution it to this particular um, drone system.
0: Right. No, I, I like that. And again, pointing, not that everything's got to be about Ukraine, but the, the use of drones in Ukraine all the way down to that individual level also involves a strike capability in many instances as they developed again this is why i think that we're actually we the u.s military is kind of behind this curve yes there's lots of stuff in experimentation but if you were to field a unit today they wouldn't have some of these like a drone that could drop capabilities unless they just diy'd it themselves
1: yeah absolutely And, and we're we're in a similar similar boat we are watching the proliferation of drones but we aren't necessarily and we're doing an awful lot of trialing but that's not necessarily making it over the finish line of getting into units
0: okay i love a systems operator at the squad and at the platoon that's great this really points to the experimentation that i got to watch with 4gd and how they've developed this ability to exercise certain systems like calling for fire like snipers like all the enablers that a platoon would be possibly given and used in an urban fight, but there's it's really hard to exercise in 4GD. Great friends of mine, that what amazed me was their ability to exercise the platoon leader cognitive load of in the real time, they actually get all these, but that means they need to stop doing something that they might've thought they were going to do in a rural environment, but no, hey, you have all these capabilities now given to you. And, and the addition of one, 4GD's ability to exercise it, but also the ability to To have a systems operator to receive some of those fees and give the platoon leader the information at the right moment i I love it but let's get into the other aspect of the changes in organic firepower that you've made to this urban optimized unit
1: yeah so far apart the the other the other key element of it we the first thing we did was we we assessed the the current platoon level lethality within the specifically within the context of an urban setting um, and we looked at some of the challenges of being able to operate some of the systems. So whether that be something like our current belt-fed machine gun in the section is the GPMG, so the M240 equivalent. Now, phenomenal bit of kit. Awesome when it's pendle mounted or when it's mounted in a tripod. Um, but anybody who's actually tried to use it in the light role in anything other than the prune position will recognize that it's it really is quite a challenge to, to actually try and use. Um, and then, so we looked at Alternatives to that. It's going to be coming out of service soon. So this is about early requirement setting for what a replacement might be. And we're currently trialing replacements for that. Um, or we're looking at options for, for replacing that. Um, similarly, the Underslung grenade launcher, um, we have we have an, an awesome Underslung grenade launcher, the M3 M320 equivalent of what the US has. Side loading, so you can load the full spectrum of 40 millimeter natures. But we in the British Army only issue one lethal round. Uh, HEDP, uh, I suppose, dual purpose. So we looked at then, okay, well, actually, without changing the weapon system, it, are there things that we can do to try and improve the effect that it can deliver? So we looked at things like airburst 40 mm grenades, enhanced blast, um, and even things like precision-guided 40 mm grenades. So you're not necessarily increasing the, you're, you're not hugely increasing the training burden, but you're dramatically increasing the effect that, that a squad uh, can actually deliver uh, at, towards a target. We also looked at shoulder launch effectors. Uh, so we we have Enlaw, awesome bit of kit. We have the anti-structure munition based on the Matador. So again, 90 millimeter anti-structure munition, uh, brilliant bit of kit. If you need to make a reinforced bunker disappear, or you need to make uh, a, you know, a farmhouse vaporize, the 90 millimeter ASM is is the tool tool for the job. But actually, what we find is that for the majority of targets, um, it's not necessarily what you're firing it against. Uh, you're not always firing it against a bunker. Um, and it's heavy it's large, it's heavy so what tends to happen is that the squads will leave them outside a target as they move in and do the clearance and then they have to go back and retrieve them in order to then suppress the next building what we then created was a two person shoulder launch rocket team or Carl Gustav, we we modelled it off Carl Gustav we couldn't call it a Carl Gustav team because we didn't want to solutioneer it but we're now buying Carl Gustav so I can now call it the Charlie G team Um, so we have Carl Gustav as an independent platoon asset so they can move around under the direction of the platoon commander or the platoon leader to reinforce whatever squad might be the main effort. You can front load munitions rather than necessarily have to front load the entire system like you would with a one-shot disposable thing. And so, yes, cargo Gustav will be less capable overall than if you just did a like for like comparison against, you know, 84mm is not the same as a 90mm anti-structure munition. 84mm heat is not going to be the same as an N-Law, but... Looking at it from the lens of what is the infantry's major, what are the majority of the tasks the infantry are going to be doing? Well, actually, the cargo staff will address the majority of tasks and it has that flexibility that's needed. So, really looking across that whole spectrum, uh, we also highlighted things like hand grenades. Uh, we use a defensive hand grenade uh, in both the offensive and defensive role, trying to identify, you know, that actually there are other options out there which might actually reduce some of the challenges of using hand grenades in, in an urban setting and reduce some of the chances of fratricide and that sort of thing. Um, and then also things like assault rifles. You saw that with the U.S. Marine Corps, they're issuing suppressors to, to everybody, and that reduces the enemy's ability to locate where shots are coming from, but it also reduces that concussive effect when firing live rounds inside a confined space and the impact that that has on people being able to sustain firefights for a long period of time, but also their ability to coordinate and stuff. So you know, highlighting things like that within the report to try and influence or try to inform decisions that might come later on with you know, say we're replacing our SA80 in the next um, few years as well. Um, so, trying to sort of set some of the the early issues that might be worth considering for an SA80 replacement.
0: Nice. Now, uh, the Carl G tried and tested. It just it, from somebody who's fired it a few times just hurts. It's just <laughs> just firing it, it hurts. And I, actually, one of the you know, and firing it from enclosure like it hurts. Uh, and I know that the Marine Corps was experimenting. It still is actually with the Firearm enclosure version anti-structural device that just lowers the concussion of the actual weapon firing it onto the user. I agree with you on the grenades too. The Marine Corps started fielding the Amtech uh, stackable grenade, right? Those are great, and I know you know you know about those. And and I have to say, just returning from Ukraine, that the in law, you know, tried and tested on the modern battlefield. It's all I hear about when I go to Ukraine is in law, in law, in law. And they have been hugely impactful in the war in ukraine and i know they really appreciate that it's an awesome piece of kit as well so let's
1: so i was gonna say i'm not uh not knocking enlaw in the slightest but it's um it's it's trying to understand what's actually being expected of the the squad level so the majority of targets where a squad will need to fire an explosive effector is not necessarily the frontal arc of a main battle tank which is exactly what enlaw is designed for which is why it's phenomenal because it'll it'll defeat a tank um it'll defeat a main battle tank fr- from the front um yep. so but that but that's not necessarily what the majority of the infantry are going to be engaging so the majority of infantry really yep. need something that's going to be sort of light maneuverable handy um, something like an m72 the the old 66 millimeter um fold-out system that would be great in the squad and then you've got something with a bigger punch so like the Char- the, the charlie g and the cargo staff at platoon level and then that means that your anti-tank platoon um, within the battalion can then choose whether they're using javelin or n depending on the nature of the terrain and what threats they're facing so really it's about trying to layer up the lethality specifically through that urban lens or just within complex terrain in general the challenges are the same So trying to look at it and say, okay, well, if we were in operating in complex terrain, which as light forces, ideally that's where you should be, then trying to look at how do we layer up the lethality to commander's options at all levels, but make it realistic. So not every target is going to be a main battle tank on the frontal arc. So maybe NLAW has a place somewhere else and we require something else in the squads.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk Urban Phalanx research project was done, completed... You gave a bunch of uh, recommendations, a bunch of proposed solutions. What did the British Army do with that?
1: So, as, as I mentioned before, this project came from the MOD Chief Scientific Advisor. It didn't come from the Army, so there was nobody in the Army who was asking for an alternative platoon structure. But what we were able to do we, when we came to do the testing phase of it, we were we put it through our highest fidelity combat modeling. That allowed us to test all of the I-STAR, all of the, the full spectrum of lethality, including explosive effectors, which we couldn't do in a, in a live experiment. So that's what, that's what we do. The in-house DSTL team ran that experimentation. And independent of me, so I wasn't there influencing in the background. Uh, so, um, so they ran that. And, but what they did, first of all, was they baselined it against our current structure and current scales of ammunition. Um, they had military advisors, ex-military contractors who were running the system, as well as DSTL analysts who were uh, interpreting the outputs. And what they, what they found when they baselined it was that the current structure was insufficient for the task that we were setting it. Now, it was a stretch task. Um, it was deliberately designed to be challenging, um, but we weren't expecting it to be as challenging as what the results showed. And then in order to try and identify where the key bits of the concept were, we put in the platoon level concepts first. So we removed all the one-shot disposables and we created the Congress staff team. We created the the platoon systems operator uh, with a tactical precision strike. And when we started to, we ran that through the simulation and Blue started to achieve some of its mission success. When we then put in the squad level concepts as well, then Blue achieved all of its mission successes uh, against Red. So we were able to give some quite clear evidence to to the army that actually um the current way of doing things is there's risk involved and then if you take on some of these concepts then you can mitigate some of those challenges and that landed quite well with the army Um, in particular it uh, was fortuitously in time with the army's creation of the experimental uh, experimentation and trials group this was sort of over to, to oversee all the experimentation and trialing going on within the army. So all of the trials and development units within armor or infantry or engineering, it all comes under the same umbrella of the, the ETG, the experimentation and trials group. They were also given a battalion of infantry based around uh, 2nd Battalion, the Royal Yorkshire Regiment. And they were looking at generating what might be sort of the next version of the infantry and we had some some good evidence that they were able to then exploit and lean into so they took the phalanx concept or sorry, urban phalanx they dropped the urban um uh, for rightly so for what they were trying to use it for and then they used that as the foundation for what they're terming to be the next generation combat team so that's the company group level uh, built around two phalanx platoons and then a maneuver support group which is basically taking battle group level assets um and making them organic to the company so mortars snipers uas etc um and they're creating that sort of sensor-decider effector link within that company group that can that can fire beyond anything that we our current companies can and then you've got the increased infantry uh, capability that the phalanx platoon brings so that's that's what's currently being trialed
0: so i'll put that in my own way of saying it there's We have similar experimentation groups. I don't know if they had the same level of impact on force structure that there is a potential for this ETG to have. But you basically had the Royal Yorkshire has incorporated some of the the recommendations that TSTL made for complex urban terrain and is experimenting with these urban well, these they dropped the urban, which I don't I personally don't like, but these platoons better designed and had better equipped for urban terrain and are experimenting with this company uh, size unit, right?
1: Yes. So the the one of the companies within 2nd Battalion, the Royal Yorkshire Regiment, uh, they've been restructured. One of the companies has been restructured based on the Phalanx platoon, but then this maneuver support group. And they've been running through platoon level training for probably a, a little over six months now. And then they had a uh, an exercise called Wessex Storm, which is a, a an ongoing series of exercises, but they joined one of the battle groups that was going through that and were able to test some of their capabilities, mostly the manoeuvre support group um, that was sort of on, on top of that. Um, and it performed very well indeed. They were very pleased with the output of it. Uh, and that's been disseminated across uh, the, sort of the wider army decision makers. Um, so... The next stage then, because they were able to validate some of the concepts within that uh, as being worthy of taking forward, they're now going to be doing another uh, series of experimentations from sort of September onwards, uh, and some of them are going to go much more into the um, the tactical element at the platoon and squad level. So we should uh, be seeing some uh, phalanx platoons running around and getting into some quite heavy contacts um, in some experimentation within the next few months, uh, which is going to be really exciting to see. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: So what would it take having seen like the project Metropolis, to be honest, what is it going to take for the for us to see a systems operator at a, in every squad of light infantry in the British Army?
1: That's a good question. so now, I, this is you know being a realist, uh, there is no um, there's no impetus in the army to actually adopt this concept. so while it is currently being trialed and being, uh, and going through that experimentation process, it still doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. And the big challenge that we find with uh, talking to people about how to integrate a phalanx type structure into the British Army is lack of people. Um, so we have um, we have a lot of battalions that aren't necessarily up to full uh, full manning levels, uh, full uh, full personnel levels. So then, how do we then guarantee that we can then resource increasing the sections by an additional two people, and the um, platoons overall by an additional six? Uh, or seven depending so that is a challenge uh and and it can't be sort of um, brushed under the carpet swept away but uh what we're doing is we're generating the evidence to then be able to go to army headquarters and to the key decision makers and say do you know what this this juice is worth the squeeze If we can, uh, if we can, we should be able to. We should be trying to generate uh, some of the additional infantry mass that we can do this. Um, Not all of our battalions are necessarily uh, up to full manning level, uh, up to full manning levels, because it doesn't necessarily fit their um, their operating model. We could look at doing something similar, taking some of that, some of the savings of personnel in one location, um, and optimise them somewhere else as well. Um, So yeah, it's it's not without challenges. People also rightly ask about. uh, career progression, like who is the systems operator? What rank do they have to be? What level of experience do they have to be? How do we generate them? You know, so currently UAS uh, in the British Army are predominantly operated by the Royal Artillery. Um, so it's trying to look okay, well if we have got company level or platoon level UAS operators, who, who are they? Where are they? Where are they getting training from? Um, who's training systems operators, etc. So the Land Warfare Centre has created a systems op- uh, a UAS operators course. Um, so that's now trying to break some of that mold and saying actually this shouldn't be just a specialist rollout to everything. but there are institutional challenges to getting this over the finishing line. Um, so while yes, it's proving quite effective when we're doing the experimentation, um, it's still not necessarily um, a guarantee that it's going to happen.
0: Right, because this is where reality of the modern battlefield bumps up against institutional bureaucracy, risk assumption, culture, Right, like you said, this is a function. This, this is a challenge. I think, and it, and unfortunately for us, the U.S. military. One of the challenges was we had a moment with the close combat lethality task force to make some broad changes, and they were talking broad, even manpower changes. Right, like the experience of a, of an individual. Right, what rank are they? Um, what are the career progressions of those positions to increase the, the lethality to increase the. Um, effectiveness of these units, there has to be changes, but we just continue to, based on, in institutional, really resistance to change, despite. But what I think you you've done is years of research to inform and to hopefully help make a decision on no, this change needs to be made. Like, well, look, we got to figure it out. But um, I personally believe, like, it's just common sense that you need. Every squad of every military needs, uh, UAS. I mean, it it is, it is a fact. So that means that there has to be bold, hard, major institutional level decisions. And and I get, you know, as an outsider, you know, frustrated that like that, it needs to be made now change it. Uh, we need some, we need some high level leadership, but I think you're this work while, like you said, still, it's still now being experimented with. To me, it's almost like common sense, like be bold. Like you've done the research. Now the experimentation is showing it, like make, make the change. But there is so much institutional. And this is what I faced when I looked at my own look at voice structure and understanding why we cur- we are the way we are currently. Some of that is history where people don't even know why the current structure exists the way it does. And then you have rotational leadership that doesn't want to make a change that's bold because they don't have the depth of, or they grew up in that system and they don't have the depth of understanding why it was that way. Like, oh, it's, it, it works. It worked for me. Like, why, why can't we just continue it? Like the, the drone is just one sm- minor aspect of this, but the cognitive load, it, hopefully, the, I, I'm just hopeful before I get to my soapbox that this, imp- this does create that bold impact. And we see in the near future, before leadership changes out or before somebody's priority changes out, that the bold change is, is made.
1: Yeah, and I'll just add that this isn't um, this isn't also, uh, in isolation. There's 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 lots of other work that we're doing, helping the army to understand some of the additional parts of. Uh, or benefits of things like exploiting robotic autonomous systems. So when we are looking at, um, looking, uh, sorry, when when the British army is looking at robotic autonomous systems, one of the key drivers of that is to reduce personnel, not necessarily so that the army can just get smaller, but so that we could then take the same personnel that would have historically been doing that particular job and generate additional infantry mass from it. So that is certainly something that, that's going on. And there's a lot of debate about, you know, why is the army looking at, you um, Sort of increasing the the squad size or the platoon size when we're talking about using RAS um, uh, autonomy to to reduce mass. Um, and it's actually it's, it's about focusing the mass that we can generate in the areas where it's absolutely needed. And you know, for all the talk of um, terminators and you know, sort of robots that can go in and clear rooms, and you see this with the the PLA. And we'll we'll show regular video footage of the robot dog with the machine gun on top. Uh, in reality. The, the urban environment is designed for people to, to move through and, uh, uh, and live in. So the soldier is the person who can best open a door, clear a room um, if needs be, or, or yeah, move through that environment, uh, not necessarily a robot. Um, so the, it's, it's trying to look at where can we save the personnel burden in one area in order to generate it somewhere else and focus our mass where it's needed
0: you're gonna push my button on robotics.
1: Uh, I work for the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory. You know, we we like robotics too.
0: Like the experimentation that I have observed, like you stick Johnny Five out there, right, or Terminator, whoever, and he stops working. Well, the whole purpose of putting the Telly Tank, as as my friend Charles Knight reminds me of, that's been it's, it's very old. I was just at that experimentation with the Marine Corps, what they call an e or 50 cal on tracks to put in front of you to give you firepower, but reduce the risk to soldiers on identifying where the enemy is. And then the signal goes down, the battery runs out like uh, the it's, it, that's a complex thing. But, but for me, like the drones, it needs to be expendable cheap. Uh, and we're not there. Johnny five is usually very expensive. It is, um, even in this TRL level, uh, again, I agree with you on why we need to continue experimentation and, and the incorporation of all these technologies, but there are some changes we could make today that would vastly increase the, or reduce the cognitive load, increase the lethality, um, and make the same amount of people more or or a very similar amount of people more effective in the urban terrain. And this is one of the paths to it, to, to, to be honest. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, Stu, I, I really appreciate this is a very exciting uh, project. There's, I've heard about it for a long, you know, people tra- talking about it, but they just didn't have the uh, research rigor behind it or people that are the experts that can inform the idea of what the leadership wants to do. And this, I think this is one of the clearest paths to it. And hopefully we pick up, we the world pick up from some of the work that's being done and make these bold changes. Cause I think they're, they need to be made to, tomorrow. Not, well, oh, we're going to experiment with this. We're going to get the data, all that, but that's my personal, I know that there's a, a very strong path forward on your end. If I could be king for the day, I'd just make some of these changes immediately across the force.
1: Well, yeah, we've got good, strong evidence for the effectiveness of it. And then it's about institutionalizing it. You know, Institutionally, how do, we, how do we then adopt it? But I will say that we're open to, to help others if they identify that some of these issues are ones that, that they want to try and overcome and that this might be a potential solution to them. So I know that um, I've had interest in it from the U.S. Army uh, Maneuver Battle Lab um from the canadians the austrians the dutch so you know there's people are interested in thinking about this as a uh, as a potential solution to these like I say universal problems and um, the urban environment it's it's challenging for for anybody to move through uh, and fight through so um so the, these are these are some options and we're more than willing to to share uh share ideas and share evidence
0: yeah 100 percent yeah we I appreciate that you are so open to do that, and you know this is my my podcast. My the reason that I have job security is that urban is not the future; it is not the future concept. Although most future concepts that I read don't even say the word urban. Urban is the present; it is the future of the most likely location in which the military will be asked to to achieve that mission: fighting not just for cities but in cities to achieve. The objective.
1: Yeah, hard agree.
0: All right, thanks, dude. Thanks for thanks for your time. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. Government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.